Welcome to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. This is Jess. I am here with Dr. Nikki Hammer, and I am just over the moon to have her here, so much so that I forgot how you start podcasts. Uh, Dr. Hammer, thank you so <laughs> much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be I, here. I, um, I listened to Dr. Hammer's podcast, um, uh, This Day in Esoteric Political History, which genuinely I think is as good a history podcast as out there. I'm obsessed with it. Um, and Dr. Hammer, you study, tw- let me see if I can get this right, 20th century, post-World War II, conservative politics slash the presidency? That is right. It's kind of a, you know, a 20th century politics. I run a center for the presidency at mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Um, so that's a, a specialty of mine. Um, and yeah, just like all this stuff that's happening in the 20th century around the right and now kind of leaking a little bit into the 21st century. Um, it is a never ending font of uh, material for analysis. Yeah. How did you find your way into this kind of niche thing. It sounds like a deeply upsetting thing to study all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't realize when I was getting into it that it was going to be quite so upsetting. I had actually gone to graduate school to study sort of late 19th, early 20th century intellectual history. Mm. And I I got to graduate school. I was a first-generation college student, so I was flying by the seat of my pants. And the first summer after uh, my first year of graduate school, I went home, and I was hanging out with my dad, who's pretty conservative. And he and I were driving around, and he was like, my goal for you this summer, because it was 2004, he was like, my goal for you this summer is to get you to vote for George W. Bush. Oh, boy. And he... Yeah. And he reaches over and he turns on the radio to the Rush Limbaugh No! Yes. Um, And for me, I was... It did not change my politics, but I spent that summer listening to right-wing talk Mm -hmm. radio with my dad and seeing not only what was on those shows, but seeing how my dad interacted with it. The way that he was kind of in conversation mm-hmm. with these hosts, he would sometimes like go along with their arguments. He would sometimes do like a um, an ad absurdum argument and then back away. Like there was all of this interplay happening. And I thought it was so mm-hmm. interesting that he thought, if I listen to the Rush Limbaugh show, my politics will change. And that got me super in- interested in right-wing radio. I stumbled onto a kind of history of it from the 1950s and 60s. That's what I ended up writing my dissertation about and the rest, as they say, is history. Absolutely incredible. And you're from Indiana, right? I am from Indiana. I'm from Southern Indiana. Whereabouts? Um, I'm from Evansville originally. Oh my God. That's Um, why I went to school in Muncie. So like half of my friends were from like that area. My best friend lives in in Louisville. So I'm always in that kind of Southern Indiana area. Lots of Trump signs. Eh? I saw a look of recognition. <laughs> Lots of Trump signs. You know, actually, it's interesting because the, the district I grew up in was known as the Fighting Eighth. Um, I think every state has its fighting <laughs> district. Um, so Evansville was a, a city, um, tended to skew a little bluer, mm. um, but it was surrounded by a ring of incredibly red rural counties. Mm. I lived out in one of those counties, um, and it made the congressional district fights really fierce between you know, sort of moderate Democrats mm-hmm. and some of the furthest right conservative Republicans, including a Republican named John Hostetler, who really what he was like the you'd have these votes that were like 450 to one or something. And he would always be route. like a one kind of outlier. <laughs> 
Um, so I, uh, I, I'm a horseback riding instructor. Um, and so I work with a lot of teenage girls, um, who are always telling me how bored they are. And so I lecture them about various things I think about. And (laughs) my one student who's 14, she had to write a paper that she had a strong opinion, like an opinion paper. And she's like, I don't have an opinion. So I was like, good news, made of opinions. I gave her a very long list of like things she should write about, all of which were (laughs) deeply boring and over her head and stupid. And for some reason, the one thing she glommed on to is that I said that Ronald Reagan is realistically responsible for a lot of issues that we see in present day society. The only thing she's gotten out of that so far is that I hate Ronald Reagan, which is not untrue, but not necessarily helpful. And then she asked me a question that I want to ask you. Do you have a favorite president? Because I was kind of she asked me that and I was like, well, I don't know, because FDR, you know, the New Deal. Great. Japanese internment wars <laughs> like they tend to be uh-huh. like yeah. Lincoln of course <laughs> freed the slaves yada 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 but like that his goal wasn't to free the slave like he wanted to preserve the union first and foremost right is that a fair assessment of that it is a fair assessment. His his goals changed over the course of the mm-hmm. war. And I think that given the times in which he was operating, the political constraints, the war going on, was he like the perfect avatar of like racial justice and <laughs> pure uh, multiracial democracy? Probably mm-hmm. not. Um, but probably as good as the U.S. would have mm-hmm. gotten uh, at that time. Uh, and you can see that in contrast to who comes after him. So with that in mind... Do you have a favorite? This is such a hard question because there's favorite, like most admirable and people like Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln has to like be at or very near the top of that list. Um, Then there are people who you like admire as people like Jimmy Mm -hmm. Carter, but who actually weren't Mm -hmm. great as uh, members of the executive. So he wasn't like a great president. And then for me, they're just like, the interesting presidents. And that's where I mm. tend to gravitate. So it's less favorite presidents, but like the people I really like thinking about and writing about. Unsurprisingly, those tend to be 20th century sure. presidents. Um, I have spent a lot of time working on Richard mm-hmm. Nixon, um, on uh, I, I actually find I, my last book dealt with Ronald Reagan some. I find him less interesting as really? a president because um, he's kind of like a puppet. He feels very straightforward, if you know what I mean. Oh, okay. That's not how he's normally written about. I feel like all of his biographers are like, he's impossible to Mm. pin down. Um, But I just, I don't find him as interestingly complex as someone like Nixon or Bill Clinton, Mm. um, who I just find, because they're not great Mm -hmm. people, (laughs) I find them super interesting um, in the the way that they... uh, they ultimately govern. So this is a very like non-straightforward answer to well, your question. It feels but, a little bit like sort of the true crime thing of like, oh, what's your favorite murder? And it's like, I, I don't like it. It's just, this is the one that's stuck in my head. That's exactly like, what are your, who are you obsessed yes, exactly. with when it comes to presidents? Like I am obsessed with Richard Nixon, with Bill Clinton, and also with Barack yeah. Obama. I spent uh, the last three years before moving to Nashville working on the Obama presidency oral history wow. project. So I was steeped in Obama land for all of that time. I got to interview <sighs> him earlier this spring. <laughs> And so he's always going to have a special place in my heart. I've taught a class on his presidency. Um, 
And also just like, an, you know, it's one of those presidencies I don't think we're going to get our arms around for a very mm. long time because you have Bush and Trump on either side. And if you're trying to make sense of like what happened to the U.S., um, they are going to attract much more attention. And then you have Biden coming mm. after who has managed to enact a much more liberal left agenda mm -hmm. than Barack Obama was able to. I mean, the, the Democratic Party is very different right. now. And so I, I, I just have no idea how we're going to assess him 20, 30, 40 years from now. Yeah, it's... I. Going back to the Nixon thing, I, I've watched that uh, the Watergate docu docuseries that you're in. Uh, uh, I cannot think of the name. Slow, Slow Burn. Burn. I, first of all, I like it so much. I, it's so I got so deep in Watergate last year, as I think a lot of people did. Um, mm -hmm. And I also, okay, so I got really deep into like FBI stuff in the last year. And so somebody who's been coming up onto my radar a lot is J. Edgar Hoover, who... Mm -hmm. Is there a more influential person in the 20th century, would you say? No. Uh, the, you know, there's that new biography out by Beth Gage um, called G-Man, which is a biography of um, J. Edgar Hoover. She's been working on it for 20 wow. years. It finally comes out. It's a thousand pages long, and she cut so much from this book in the process of, of finally publishing it. It wins the Pulitzer mm -hmm. Prize. It wins every history prize out there. Um, and it has the subtitle, I think it's something like J. Edgar Hoover and the American Century. Mm -hmm. And that kind of subtitle, like the name and the American Century, is so hackneyed. No book ever lives up to it because nobody actually ever exemplifies the American mm -hmm. Century. But you know what? J. Edgar Hoover mm -hmm. earns it. He is there in a seat of power from like the early 20s to the 70s. He's just, he's everywhere. And he shapes American power and the presidency and the national government and people's daily mm -hmm. lives in such profound ways that it's, yes, he is a, a maker of the American Century. It truly, I, I read an autobiography about uh, John Douglas and I did not realize there had been female FBI agents predating Hoover. And he was like, absolutely yeah. not out with you, which is, I mean, not surprising, of course. I guess I'm more surprised that they were able to go back so hard so quickly just off his sheer mm -hmm. force of personality. One of the things that I love about that, um, I mean, I obviously don't <laughs> love that women were excluded from the FBI, but... You know, we have these stories that we tell ourselves about history, about how progress is inevitable, mm -hmm. that rights once gained will stay gained. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just like well, this one little anecdote about, oh, did you know there were women FBI agents? And then they were like, no, we're not going to yeah. do that. And that is kind of, as you sort of begin to rifle through some of uh, U.S. Mm -hmm. history, you see people gaining opportunities, you see people um, gaining rights and then being systematically shut out and women FBI agents were among it's, those. It's so, it's just so baffling. And, and how, like the name Jagger Hoover is so ubiquitous, right? Like I heard mm -hmm. it when I was five years old watching Clue a billion times as a kid, right? Like, J. Edgar, why is J. Edgar Hoover on your phone? J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> um, and so he was just sort of this like floating, like a uh, guy above everything. Mm -hmm. And I read a book um, about uh, the Bellevue, about Bellevue, the hospital in New York. And he mm -hmm. was talking a lot about 20th century. And the author made a note that Hoover's idea with G-Men was that he wanted them to be painted as basically superheroes, hence like the kind of G-Man thing. So they would 
be able to do whatever the fuck they wanted. Is that basically it? I mean, yes, that you could act without constraints, um, which is something that Hoover was. It's so fascinating the way that the the avatars of law and order are actually operating in the most lawless ways. Um, And Hoover is an excellent example of this. You know, the idea that the FBI was untouchable. Mm -hmm. um, And it's it's telling that it's not until after Hoover Mm -hmm. dies that you get that big exploration by Senator Frank Church into the CIA and into the intelligence communities to say, oh, these were actually super corrupt and operating unconstitutionally and illegally. And the Cold War was such a driver of everything in the 20th century. And I Mm -hmm. am the first to admit, I do not understand it. And I'm trying, but... Last weekend, I had my in-laws over and we needed to make dinner in a crunch. Instead of ordering out, we did something even easier thanks to ButcherBox. We were able to grab just what we needed and exactly how much we needed from the freezer. After that, everything else was a breeze. You too can skip the grocery store knowing you have the food you trust and the food you chose in your freezer. I know that might sound strange coming from me since I'm vegetarian, but they have a high-quality veggie burger that I absolutely love. They have options for pescatarians too. And if you eat everything, that's also okay. The food from ButcherBox is high quality, grass-fed, and free-range. Have peace of mind knowing there are no antibiotics or added hormones. Sign up at ButcherBox.com friendly and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com friendly and use code FRIENDLY to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. I have a thought that I want to run by you, that World War II mm-hmm. was this like moment of Americana in that everybody's pitching in, victory gardens, don't wear your pantyhose, you know, Rosie the Riveter, etc. And it was, we gotta fight the Nazis, we gotta fight Hitler, it's a Hitler, it's the Hitler. And it was a... It's a war people love to remember because there is a a good guy and a bad guy. Has the American government been trying to recast Nazis for the rest of the 20th century? Like, I I feel like they went to communism. Ah, communism is the big scare. But like, that doesn't mean anything to me as a human being. I don't like Nazis are scary. They're murdering people. Communism is like you're threatening with bread lines, but I don't, that's not in my, (laughs) my understanding. Do you think that's accurate? It's so much more amorphous. Yeah. I mean, you're on to two really important things. And one is that World War II is quote unquote, the good war. Right, where it was so clear who the good guys were and who the bad guys were, and we're fighting the Nazis. And there's something so comforting about this idea that we are just on the right side. Um, and that also helps to paper over um, the fact that it's, we talked about this on this day, that it's during World War II that napalm mm. is invented. Obviously, it's during World War II that the atomic yeah. weapons are first unleashed on the world. These are terrible, terrible things. You've mentioned Japanese mm-hmm. internment. It it wasn't so clear-cut, good guys and bad guys, but that is the story that we tell ourselves. Communism really 
was more amorphous. I, I do think that the fear of the Soviets and communism, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, was so intense mm. in the United States. I think it's difficult to recapture how afraid many people were. And they were afraid in large part because of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. right? Like th- there's something so destabilizing about this new weapon that it's not just that it has the power to wipe out all life mm-hmm. on Earth, although that's a big sure. part of it, but there's something kind of mystical and um, terrifying about the idea that we've unleashed the power of the atom, the building block mm-hmm. of life, and the it's power so destabilizing. <laughs> power of the sun. And there was something like at yeah. the time that people were really excited mm-hmm. about it. They were like, oh, we could have unlimited power. We, This is, this is incredible um, if we can just continue to harness the power of the atom. But it was also destabilizing because it was like, and we can also wipe out mm-hmm. all life on Earth. And the Soviets come to represent once they get the bomb, which is very shortly after World mm-hmm. War II, um, they represent a kind of existential threat in a way that no other war had really ever represented. And I think that's why it comes to captivate people so much. And, of course, it, it lasts for yeah. 40 years, and it goes terribly mm-hmm. awry. Um, but that's that was the fuel for Well, and the idea is that they wanted— the, the my understanding of the reason that they were building a lot of people building this bomb said this is a bomb that's going to end wars. Once we have this bomb, mm-hmm. everyone will be like, okay, we can't fight wars anymore— because we've got these bombs. Like, do you think they gen- They must have really believed that? Do you think in their hearts? I think there were there were some people who absolutely believe that. I'll, I'll tag another episode of this day that we did. Um, so when airplanes were first invented, mm. um, Orville and Wilbur Wright really did believe that because airplanes would fundamentally change the nature of war, they would make it possible to see from very high up where troops were approaching mm. from, that they would actually be instruments of peace, that mm. you would be able to eliminate war because you had this new kind of almost defensive weapon. Sure. Um, and they're Absolutely were people who uh, believed that. It's an incredibly naive mm-hmm. belief in a lot of ways. I mean, the very idea that you can end all war strikes me as both... Um, I love that people believe <laughs> that. It seems extremely unrealistic yeah. and historically ahistoric yeah. in a lot of ways, right? Like, I mean, as long as there's... Good luck. It's been with us As long as there's history. any kind of imbalance of power, right, there's going to be conflict, Absolutely. And uh, there will be, like, it's interesting Mm -hmm. how the dawn of the atomic age played Mm -hmm. out. There hasn't been um, the use of nuclear weapons ever since. And so there is something that happens with nuclear Mm -hmm. weapons that once they have been used, they continue to exist as this tremendous threat, but they don't get used again. They change, you know, we get all of these proxy Mm -hmm. wars during um, the Cold War to keep both yeah. sides from using nuclear weapons. So that's interesting, but it's not an end to war. And then the the Cold War and the space race are sort of always going to be hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And that's another, I think, I'm, oh, I'm, I was like, we're going to just hear that. It's literally your podcast. I'm halfway through it. The one about the um, <laughs> the uh, station crashing, the, the orbiting, what was that called? The Skylab? Skylab, Skylab. crashing mm-hmm. down. And you did such a wonderful job of summing up 1969 to 1979 in terms of trust in American politics and things like that. Could you kind of uh, explain that a little bit for me? I, I just really enjoyed hearing you talk about it. Sure. Uh, I could talk about space all day. This is actually something that I'm 
mildly obsessed with. But, you know, the 60s were very much defined, yes, by the space race, um, but by this very optimistic goal that John Kennedy lays out at the beginning of his presidency, that a man will walk on the moon by the end of the decade, which seems like incredibly unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, a man goes into orbit um, shortly thereafter, and there are all these successive ventures. And ultimately, in 1969, um, the U.S. lands people on Mm -hmm. the moon. And it is this moment of awe and accomplishment and a kind of optimistic hope that you can dream big dreams and you can Mm. achieve them. Not to say that like the space program wasn't controversial, but it it was this moment that seemed to to summarize the um, feeling of the 60s, that big government could do big Mm. things um, and make the world wider and more possible in some ways. The 1970s, not a great decade for government. Um, And it's in 1979 that Skylab, which was this um, space station that was supposed to stay in orbit for like 10, 12 years, um, its orbit started to decay fairly quickly. And it was clear that it was going to come crashing back down to Earth. And nobody knew how to stop Mm -hmm. it from potentially crashing into like New York City. New York City. (laughs) Beijing, <laughs> London. Like, what happens when a space station crashes down on a Because NASA city? had not put any kind of way to control it, period. End of sentence. <laughs> they, there's a there's a, a, a saying, right? What comes up must what goes up must mm. come down, and that very basic lesson that is... seemed to be something that NASA had not learned. Um, yeah, so there was no way to control it, so it's just degrading in mm-hmm. space, and NASA can't come up with a plan, and the government can't come up with a plan, and ultimately it crashes in the Indian Ocean. Um, nobody is harmed by the crash. A few pieces wash up in uh, in Australia. But that idea that, like, here you've tried to do something big in mm-hmm. space, and it all comes crashing down at the end of the 70s. And it is kind of like that malaise decade where, like, nothing works. Government doesn't work. Nothing. There's nothing to hope in mm-hmm. anymore. And that becomes symbolic of how... I don't know, just how sad and desperate that decade Mm -hmm. was. And do you think that sort of feeling of malaise paved the way for a Reagan to come through and just be like, hey, better times ahead? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Reagan, it's hard to remember this now, but he was somebody who was so charismatic. Mm. He was an Mm -hmm. actor. Um, He comes in with a bold message make America great again, um, as well as... familiar. I've never heard that before. So. No, I, I, yeah, isn't that an interesting... <laughs> I'm glad we've been able to recover that from uh, from 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but this idea that it, it comes out in his 84 campaign, that it's mourning again mm. in America, um, that America can stand strong in the world again. It's coming not only after the Carter administration, which had kind of flopped to mm-hmm. an end. There was a hostage crisis that was going that made the U.S. look weak in the world. There had been um, gas rationing, yeah. which made it seem like the days of abundance were over. The Vietnam War had ended, and then the South Vietnamese resistance had fallen. And it, it just seemed like everything was failing mm-hmm. And that their that American power was dying yeah. out, and that America's best days were behind it. And Reagan comes up and he's like, "No, America's best days are ahead of it." 
<laughs> as simple as that message is and as little as backed uh-huh. it up, that was a promise that people were like, oh, I would like to believe that. Yeah. Um, and he wins two massive landslide Huge elections. elections. Just wild. I. That makes me think a lot about, I remember when I was young, my dad, who uh, was a Republican until Trump. He hates Trump. And he, like, phone banked for, for, for Biden in 2020. Like, he, Incredible. it's wild stuff. But I remember when he was younger, or when I was younger, rather, I guess we were both younger. That's how time works. Um, he, had <laughs> said, <laughs> he had said something in passing about, like, how did the flower children of the 60s become these, like, shitty, racist, hateful adults? And I feel like maybe you're helping me understand that a little bit more of they saw they grew up with the promise of this i mean lord if i had gotten rich that would be the path i went down too right like i graduated college in 2008 the market was garbage yep i had no faith in anything and if i now was wealthy i could see myself being more conservative but unfortunately but i guess that's what what happened right they they got disillusioned in the 70s things were terrible watergate happened destroyed U.S. confidence in its government in a huge way. And then, what, Ronald Reagan comes out and says, what, it's okay to be American again or something. Yeah, he's, he says, you know, we're going to take um, the fight to the people out there. I mean, he doesn't actually end up doing no, that. he doesn't he have the invasion of Grenada. <laughs> um, but then, you know, he promises to end the Cold War, and the Cold War mm-hmm. does end at the end of the 1980s. Um, there is... a a growing prosperity with an asterisk. <laughs> um, so there were some efforts being undertaken uh, with monetary policy under Carter in the last few years he was in office that were already beginning to break the back of inflation. Mm. So that was the other thing oh, about the, the 70s inflation. was you think inflation is bad now? Mm-hmm. It was Wild, really yeah. bad then. And not only was like inflation really bad, but the um, unemployment rate mm-hmm. was going up. And so... Everyone was immiserated by the economy. And a lot of that gets shaken out in the 1980s. Now, the cost of Reaganomics, um, of Reagan's approach to the economy and uh, um, to this this new era after the 1970s, was that inequality almost immediately begins mm-hmm. to spike. There's a, a kind of uh, my colleague Jeff Cowie talks about the the New Deal era in the 1940s and 1950s as the great exception, mm-hmm. this period in which um, Inequality was flattened. There was more widely shared prosperity. There was a government willing to work to protect, eventually, um, the the civil mm-hmm. rights and, and rights of um, black Americans and women and gay people across the board. Um, and that is something that is given up mm-hmm. on in the 1980s. This idea of widely shared prosperity, multiracial democracy, that that begins to fade away, especially among Republicans, as, as their vision. Now, Reagan still embraces ideas of diversity. He's open to immigration. Mm. Um, he's very much invested in the language of freedom. It's not until the 90s that that really begins to turn and spoil on the right. Um, but Reagan sets into motion the breakdown of um, sort of welfare policies, um, shared equality. Um, it's a it's a decade of, of greed mm. and the rich getting richer more than it is a decade where the middle class is on Well, the I feel like when I found out that Nixon passed um, the EPA, uh, like mm-hmm. my head almost fell clean off my shoulders. I just couldn't 
wrap my head around it because that's nothing you would see today. But like, like you said, Reagan wasn't as socially conservative as we are today. He was just extremely fiscally conservative, right? Is that a correct assessment? I mean, that's, that's, that's true. Um, certainly for his personal politics, um, Reagan would end up offering a lot to the religious right and to social conservatives, but he himself was more libertine Mm. and more of a libertarian than he was a social conservative. I see. Um, I'll talk about some caveats to that in a second, but um, he was, you know, in the late 1970s, when there are all of these um, pushes across the country to um, make it possible to fire gay Mm. people um, from Mm. their jobs for Mm. being gay, um, Reagan says, no, well, that's that's a bad idea. That's encroaching on people's civil rights. So that makes him a little different from the religious, religious right that he's courting in the 1980s. At the same time, Ronald Reagan becomes the first president to uh, write and publish a book while in office. And that book was called Abortion in the Conscience of a Nation. So a very strong anti-abortion really? book. Yeah. So, and he also- I like, did he, not he helped, know that. Yeah. Yikes. Say it again. Yeah. Abortion and in the conscience camp- of America. Abortion in the conscience. The conscience of a nation. Yeah, I mean, so he's he's he doesn't deliver um, anti-abortion policy necessarily, but he does continue to support and the anti-abortion. Sets movement. the table for sure for other people to take it a step further. Absolutely, it's in the early '80s when the Federalist Society is oh, founded. You can <laughs> begin to see how those things are related. Um, and also, like, Reagan gives a campaign speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, mm. um, where he talks about states' rights, which is a, a big dog whistle um, uh, for segregationists mm-hmm. and for anti-black um, uh, mm-hmm. Americans. And so to say that he doesn't have any sort of social or racial conservatism isn't quite right, but um, he's definitely different than what comes Mm -hmm. after. Like, the Republican Party is marching to the right in the 70s and 80s and 90s and beyond. Um, And so somebody who was pretty conservative Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s, we're now looking back at and we're like, well, (laughs) we weren't that conservative. Then try to overthrow the government. Right, like, okay, so let's, since this is called The Friendly Atheist and I'm supposed to the premises I'm supposed to be talking about religion um, and not just interview people I want to talk to, which is what I do. Um, I want to talk about the Christian right in the 20th century. I just bought a book and I was like, oh, I should read it before I interview Dr. Hammer. But that was like yesterday um, called uh, <laughs> called uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Jesus and John Wayne. That Yes. By, uh, yes. I'm very, very, very excited to read it. Um, I would love to sort of talk about... What Christian? How Christianity became ubiquitous with conservative politics, um, and if the, and and how that looped into what I really would love to hear you explain to me is the parties flipping platforms, and like we kind of understand mm. if we study U.S. history, like we we see that it happens over however long, but like an an election what does it look like when two parties are completely flipping their policies like what was this sort of like madness that was happening in the five years or the decade that that was flipping 
So the flip takes a lot longer oh. than that. I mean, the way that it's usually described is um, a flip that happens in 1964. It happens almost right. immediately because Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act. There's this apocryphal story that he says, I've signed away the South for a generation. Mm. Actually, it seemed they signed away the South for much longer, certainly the White South. Um, sure. But, you know, Bill Clinton even in the 1990s is winning states like Arkansas mm. um, uh, and some of these deep South states. Um, when he runs. So there is, it takes a oh, while. God, yeah, I guess it's um, through yeah. our lifetime. That's weird. It, it, it really is. I mean, you see it in, in these border states like Tennessee, where I live now, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. where at least at the state level, they had a strong Democratic Party until very recently, until the past 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years. Um, so it's a, it's a slower process. But I think it is incomplete when we talk about it solely in terms of um, the Republican Party beginning to embrace anti-black policies. Uh-huh. That is a huge part of it. But I think it's important to bring religion in, too, um, because part of the shift that is happening is around religion. The Republican Party in the first half of the 20th century was a party of white Protestants. And when it came to religious social policy, they weren't necessarily pushing it that hard, which is not to say that, I mean, there certainly were right-wing Christian nationalists um, who had uh, power in both Mm -hmm. parties and who were pushing religious policies. But the party as a whole, like the Republican Party is the first to come out for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, for the equal rights of women um, in the United States. They are the party of Planned Parenthood. Barry Goldwater, a very conservative senator who wins the Republican nomination in 1964, his wife was a co-founder of the Phoenix branch of Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So, I mean, the the idea that reproductive Mm -hmm. rights um, were something that the Democratic Party supported just wasn't the case. One more example, George H.W. Bush, who, of course, becomes vice president Mm -hmm. under Reagan and then president after... um, was a Republican member of Congress, and he was so pro-reproductive rights that they called him Robert. <gasps> what? <laughs> okay, now in my yeah. head in the White House, there's just like a bowl of condoms. Like, like in your just RAs. a bowl of condoms, right? <laughs> you, you think about it with Clinton, sure, but it was actually sure. George H.W. Bush that was wow, putting them out there. Wait. And so he has to give up his pro-reproductive rights policies Mm. in order to get on the ticket with Reagan. And that gives you a sense of how things are shifting, that the party is shifting as it begins to embrace um, both the uh, evangelical religious Mm. right and as it tries to peel Catholics off from the Democratic Party. Yeah, the... the (laughs) I feel like my relationship with Catholicism is very strange because I grew up in the Chicagoland area, the child of two lapsed Catholics. Everybody I knew was mm. Catholic. And like, I did not realize that Catholicism and Christianity were not the same thing until I was in college. Like, that was just the 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 way I grew up. And everybody I knew growing up, especially if they were like very religious, were very conservative. So this idea of Catholics being an other is such a wild thing. It took me so long to wrap my mind around the fact that like JFK was like a Catholic and that was red flags for people. I, I think our short mm-hmm. memory of history is one of the way one of the reasons we're so racist all the time it's like dude like i'm half italian a century ago i was not white like that's not that's mm-hmm. it, it, Jew, there was an amazing episode about um judaism and how jewish people 
claimed their identity and became quote unquote white because they were mm-hmm. not like it's these ways that we think of the Irish golly, like the ways we think about these things. And, but it's like, no, 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 this time they're actually bad. You're confused. The last time we were confused. This time <laughs> right. they're really bad. Like, <laughs> right. It doesn't, it doesn't make people rethink the entire system of othering and racism and how, it just, you know, it just reshuffles again and again. Ugh. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons that the Italians and Irish were not considered white was their Catholicism, right? Huh. That it was part of their otherness um, oh. that that comes into play. Um, but that, that anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States was wild. So in the 19th strange. into the 20th century, the Klan, in fact, it was, was, was quite anti-Catholic in the 1920s. Which is, yeah. I, I, I think I learned that fact on your podcast and just like could not function for like an hour. I was like, wait, like it truly is. I I think our understanding of history becomes so simplified that when we lose nuances, we lose really important understandings of how the world works. And the fact that I didn't know that the KKK was anti-Catholic, that would have changed how I viewed them. Cause like I was a white, you know, a white person, I was not worried about the the KKK in so much, even when I was in Indiana. Um, but but if I had known they were anti-Catholic, that would have painted a more interesting and nuanced picture of a group of scared white guys who were just going after everybody mm-hmm. who was not them. And how racism and bigotry functions, like what it functions for, that it is not a sort of like natural response to black people, which I think is sometimes how like yeah people, even well-meaning people think of it, um, that there is something sort of natural about it. Um, and if you can see these kind of, this kind of broader scope of prejudice and how it, you know, ebbs mm. and flows over the, the decades and centuries, I think it, it helps. And you can also begin to see connections because there was a, a women's auxiliary to the Ku Klux Klan cool. in the 20s. Glad they're diverse. Um, and, <laughs> right, you know, they're, they're very um, modern <laughs> in that way. But that women's auxiliary, the WKKK, was... Um, focused on purging Catholic school teachers, so getting them fired, um, getting any sort of Catholic books banned from school Hmm. libraries. And you hear that and you're like, book bans, teachers getting fired. Hmm. If we look and see like these trends, first of all, that they're associated with some pretty not great Mm -hmm. things, that they're associated with political illiberalism and with violence again and again and Mm -hmm. again in U.S. history, we could be a little less shocked when Moms for Liberty roll around and start banning Uh books and getting teachers fired and start associating with violent groups and quoting mm-hmm. Hitler. And then you're like, oh, I I get how this yeah. connects. And we can get over our surprise a little more quickly so that we can um, act a I mean, more we quickly. just covered a story that I have just been thinking about so much of a teacher or a principal or somebody got fired because a teacher showed her students a picture of the, the statue of David. Mm-hmm. And the principal got fired or something. Yes. Like, I, I, it's so... I, I, like, how can you get so swept up in the, I mean, I guess it's cults too, right? Like you, you just in a feedback loop and everybody just, uh, it's wild. I think it's, it's, it is wild. And I think that it's important not to get too hung up 
on the inconsistencies. Because mm. you could look at something like that and you could be like, wait, these are the same people who are like Western yeah, Civ, yeah. Western <laughs> Civ, and it's the statue of David. What what are you doing? Um, but if you think about it in terms of the moral panic over so-called grooming mm. and over sexuality and over schools and a desire to exert control mm. and to show that you have this control in order to keep everyone else in line, then maybe you sacrifice a teacher and a picture of David in order to fulfill this larger political oh my goal. God. It's insane. What is your favorite moral panic of the 20th century? <laughs> there are so many. I mean, I, I am still pretty fascinated by the satanic hard, panic of the like, 80s. It's such an obvious it's answer. Hard not but to, like, yeah, I know. It was. But, because it had like because the occult is so interesting, mm. I think that's what what draws me to it. But also, you know, the it is bound up in the the sort of child abduction mm-hmm. panic and the child sexual abuse panic. And the thing that interests me so much about it is that at that very moment, we suddenly had new information about like oh, like children are more likely to be abused by people they that they know. Um, They're more likely to be abducted by people that they know. And we have this whole decade or two of stranger Mm -hmm. danger that then distracts from this very real issue that society could have been dealing with and facing. You know, it takes another 20 years for the church sexual abuse scandals to um, to break. And all of it, like, it, it, it. has such a high cost. Like it's not just that it's these that people actually believe these wild stories about right. Satanists, um, but that there's um, also a, a deep political and cultural and just like personal cost for so mm-hmm. many people that makes it really fascinating. But I mean, the the nineteenth the twentieth century is just a wash in moral panics. Um, <sighs> it's basically the leitmotif of politics. It in the really. Century. And why do you think that? Is like what, what or is, has more have moral panics been happening just all through time, and it just mass media made it a little more accessible and larger. I mean, moral panics have definitely been around for a long time. Think about the witch oh, trials yeah. of the 16th and you 17th know, century. Like I went to Salem in 2019 for a friend's wedding, and I loved it. I love history. I love walking around. But there was a really weird vibe that I kept thinking, like, like 19 people died, gang. Like, I don't know if you were sparkly. Witch's hat is, like, chill. But that's really me being judgy yeah. and... <laughs> It's you being judgy and like, but not necessarily wrong. I mean, there was um, when I was in graduate school, I was in graduate school with a really wonderful historian um, who worked on, among many things, um, uh, women's mm. history, and. I remember her coming in, sort of like steam rolling out of her ears one day because there had been all these like cutesy statues that were going up around the country that were associated with like television shows. And in Salem, they had just put up a statue from Bewitched. And she was like, I mean, congratulations on your TV show about witches, but women were murdered there because they were women. And that's not something that we should be, like, doing a little nose wrinkle and a little wink about. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think that there's space. I think that there's space for all of these things. Um, But it's okay to also have some moments of introspection to say, are we cutesifying this a little bit too much? Because if we saw it as the act of terrorism and violence that it actually Mm -hmm. was— we might think about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and there and I will say like they do have a museum that 
is walks you through it in a really visceral like mm-hmm. way in a no hole. They're not trying to downplay it. They are telling you like, yeah, my dude got smooshed to death and his last words were more weight. Like this shit was intense, <laughs> intense. But then you, it was, it was torture. Literal tor- right? I, I just, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't remember where I was going with that. Um, could we talk a little bit about, we, you mentioned it quickly, abortion throughout the 20th century and how that has become a religious issue because pre 20th century, it was not even on the radar. Is that right? Like it's just the, every, as long as there've been humans getting pregnant, there've been humans trying not get pregnant and not be pregnant anymore. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the the efforts to end a pregnancy are simply part of medical history as long as we've had medical mm-hmm. history. Now, it has not always been part of the formal um, sort of um, patriarchal <laughs> official medical system, um, but it is something that in particular um, uh, women doctors and nurses have, midwives have known about and have worked on um, across cultures um, and in the U.S. from the moment the U.S. was founded and well before. Abortion starts to kind of become part of politics uh, during the late 19th century oh. as the Comstock laws are being passed. So it's tied up in all of that vice regulation, um, oh. which is to say, you know, it's when you start to get bans on information about sex and about birth control. Sure. It's tied up in this greater attack on reproductive knowledge and reproductive mm-hmm. rights, um, which isn't to say that, like, it's, you know, it doesn't get banned wholesale across the country, but there are new limits being put on it. Um, and doctors really push back against this as the medical profession professionalizes. <laughs> um, they they make the claim that, you know, actually, this should be the purview of doctors, not of lawmakers. Mm. So you have activists throughout the 20th century um, who are trying to make reproductive rights more accessible, reproductive knowledge more accessible. But the modern abortion wars that we're used to thinking about really do emerge in the 60s and 70s. Catholics had been on the anti-abortion hop for a long mm-hmm. time, um, and they are, in many ways, the uh, the entering wedge of this. They bring it into Protestantism. Mm-hmm where it largely hadn't been. They bring it into Judaism, where it largely hadn't really? been. Um, yeah, it's yeah they it it they are the they are the sort of early adopters <laughs> of anti-abortion politics um, and are working at the same time that abortion laws are, are liberalizing in the 1960s. They are part of the movement, constantly pushing mm. back to try to keep um, abortion laws from becoming more liberalized. 1973, you have Roe v. Wade. It's obviously the beginning of this particular uh, judicial battle that we've seen um, over the past 50 years Mm. now. Um, And at that moment, like, even the conservative movement was not anti-abortion. Abortion Abortion was not an issue for evangelicals. It was not an issue for Republicans. It was not an issue for conservatives. As I said before, the Republican Party was the reproductive Mm -hmm. rights party. Um, Protestants saw abortion as a Catholic issue. And conservatives were divided on it. There's this um, conservative talk radio host that I write about in my first book who Mm -hmm. was Catholic. And he came out pretty hard against abortion in the early 1970s. And one of his donors writes him and is like, this is not conservative. It is not conservative to have the government tell you what medical procedures you can have. You need to stop talking about this. And did he? No! Yes. (laughs) He really needed the money. (laughs) Wow. People used to listen to criticism and take it into account. 
imagine. When the critics were signing sure, the okay, checks, just, it made it much <laughs> easier to, to listen. He still wouldn't have listened to me. <laughs> that I can guarantee. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but then, like, the the politics of abortion really do change after that. So my, I also come from a Catholic family. My mom had um, been at the convent um, prior to leaving and meeting no. my dad. Um, so a very Catholic family, but anti-abortion culture was not a big part of my mom's mm. upbringing, even though she was Catholic. Like there, there wasn't like this this idea that you have like little fetal pins, you know, the footprint uh-huh. pins. Um, I wore those throughout oh, high wow. school. Um, the t-shirts, like the the kitsch, yeah. the tchotchkes, the anti-abortion tchotchkes. She's like uh, George Michael culture. It, it just it's non-existent mm. until the late eighties and the nineties. Um, and so when I'm coming up as a Catholic, anti-abortion politics are all over the place. The idea that you would go to the March for Life every year in Washington, D.C., this was kind of like a rite mm-hmm. of passage. Um, and that's—it's in the 80s and 90s that this begins to change. Maybe the late 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention um, has to change its policy mm-hmm. on abortion. I think maybe in the late 70s, um, it takes a long time for conservative Catholics and Protestants and Mormons and Jews to get on the <laughs> same page about abortion, um, even even as evangelicals become more anti-abortion, there is still kind of this prejudice that keeps them from working with Catholics <laughs> for a pretty long wow. time. Um, but the injection of all of this religion into politics, the rise of the moral majority and the religious right, and the idea, the the fact that they make abortion their mm. issue, the demand for uh, an amendment outlawing abortion, overturning mm. Roe v. Wade, the demand for judges who will overturn Roe v. Wade, that reshapes Republican politics by the 1980s. Why do you think abortion was such a successful campaign platform? Because I've read, there's a quote I feel like everybody passes around of the unborn are a really easy population to advocate for because they don't require anything of you. You don't have to feed them or clothe them or provide them with care. Um, and so, yeah, I think, yeah, do you think that's fair? I think that the abortion issue is such a powerful one because, you know how we were talking about mm-hmm. World War II easier, uh, earlier? It, it is so easy if you believe that abortion stops a beating mm. heart that abortion is murder, for it to be it's slot into such an easy moral story. And you combine that with control over women's reproductive mm-hmm. rights, right? The patriarchy and misogyny inherent in opposition to women's reproductive rights. Um, and it's very easy to supercharge it because you have very religious people who see it as a mm-hmm. as murder. Um, you see other folks who see it as a kind of anti-feminist mm-hmm. politics. Um, that they can then make a coalition around with with religious um, voters. Um, I think that's a big part of it. And politicians see it, I think they see it as kind of easy because they can't overturn Roe v. Mm. Wade. They know they're never going to be able to pass a constitutional Mm -hmm. amendment. So they get to promise the moon and continue to like point to abortion as this kind of singular Mm -hmm. issue that you have to come out Mm -hmm. and vote on. Um, They see that motivated, activated base around abortion. And they're like, these are these are easy voters to pick up. Um, And it takes it actually takes until the mid to late 1990s for the Republican Party to really become basically 100 percent 
anti-abortion. Huh. Um, it's a big issue in the 1990s as they as they try to work out where they stand on it. Um, but once they get there, they don't move, even though they're not delivering victories, uh, at least not at the mm. national level. Um, they do get a victory with um, with the Casey decision, um, which creates more space to roll back abortion rights. I think that's in 92. Um, and then they switch their focus to state-level regulations. Yeah, I remember. And if you turn the your... trap t- laws yeah. were really big. Yes. I remember that a lot. Yeah, so you see there's a couple of different waves, but you see in the 80s and 90s um, with Operation Rescue, you see increased violence mm-hmm. against abortion mm-hmm. providers. Um, that's when you start to see the murder of um, doctors yeah. who provide abortions and members of their staff, um, increased attacks on abortion clinics um, and pregnancy clinics. Um, and then by the 2000s, the focus is all on state laws and changing state laws so that by the time you get to Dobbs, mm-hmm. um, basically there were states in which abortion was access was only theoretical Truly. For, for many yeah. of the women. What I it's wild. I was talking to my. It's, it's a bad story. Terrible. Uh, last spring, I was in North Carolina with some of my friends um, who all live in Louisville, and we had a really long talk about being a blue dot in a red state and what that feels like and what the benefits are. And they were like, you know, it's ups and downs, but we like where we live. We like this. You know, they love Louisville. Louisville's great. And then Roe v. Wade got overturned, and now we are having different conversations. Like the, mm-hmm. uh, it just it genuinely scares the absolute shit out of me. It see, and the right seems constantly on the on the hunt for a boogeyman, on the hunt for the next person who <laughs> is threatening your children. Right now, it's trans people. And it seems to me like they're, they keep, and I say this on the podcast a lot, they keep narrowing who the bad guy is, who the villain is, because it used to be just like gay people in general, but everyone was like, no, no, guys, like I, this is nothing. But the trans thing is, trans people are such a relatively small population, you know, in this country. Chances are people are not interacting with a lot of trans people in their day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. but that's the big bet. Or drag queens in libraries, as if that is like this huge threat, when all along the Catholic Church has been abusing children and protecting those abusers. And like, I know you said I can't get caught up on the inconsistencies, but I'm really gonna, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I it, look, Dennis Hastert, who was the longest-serving speaker of the House for the Republican Party, molested children. Um, so, like, we're looking in the wrong place when we're looking at trans people, but trans people are not being picked on because they are sexually abusive. They are being picked on because they're a sexual mm-hmm. minority. And it's fascinating, you know, coming off of the conversation about abortion and reproductive rights, a lot of the same arguments, um, a lot of the same... Um, uh, sort of strategies to deny access to medical care, um, to bar access to doctors, to limit what doctors can provide. There are all these bills now, including here in Tennessee, about banning um, transition mm-hmm. care. Um, so there's you see that same kind of interference in the medical system and in people's personal medical mm-hmm. choices. Um, but, you know, it also just kind of coming back to this idea that 
progress doesn't move in one way or history doesn't move Mm. in one way. It is true that over the past five to 10 years, there has been a kind of narrowing um, because after the Obergefell decision, after marriage equality became the law of the land, it suddenly wasn't cool to attack Mm -hmm. gay people. And so then there is this kind of focusing in on trans people, which happens almost Mm. immediately. Like the attacks on drag queens was happening back in 2017, 2018. Um, uh, The sort of turn against trans rights, the bathroom bills are coming out in like 2014, 2015. So all of this stuff was percolating almost immediately. Um, But what we have seen now, you see it in both the Supreme Court and in sort of political rhetoric, is it's broadening back out. Oh. That you see more and more people who are saying, we warned you. We said it's a slippery slope. If you have marriage equality, if you give the rights for gays to marry, then you're going to then suddenly like then a man can become a woman. Like you're denying God's God's mm -hmm. reality. And once you've done that, this is what happens. So now we've got to go back and we've got to get rid of gay marriage. Um, We've got to deny um, gay people the rights to buy websites and cakes and to participate freely in the market. Um, So we're actually seeing more anti-gay rhetoric now than we have seen in, in quite some time. And so the trans issue then is a kind of entering mm. wedge to um, the, the re-mainstreaming of homophobia. And it is, it's pretty dark um, because there's, it's not just going to be more and more legal restrictions on uh, queer people in the United States, um, but that type of restriction is almost always accompanied by violence. And we will most likely see more and more of that (sighs) as well. Okay. That bummed me out in a really strong way. (laughs) So I want to go back to talking about Richard Nixon. (laughs) Anything else I can bum you? (laughs) Let's talk shit about Richard Nixon. Okay. There's plenty of shit to talk. I don't remember if this was your quote from Slow Burn, and I'm really sorry I keep like quoting your stuff back to you like a dork. Um, But I think it was you who said the the real question is like, why did all of these people take these huge risks for a man who is famously disloyal and famously untrustworthy and famously slimy and famously paranoid? Like, and I genuinely have been sitting with that for a year. Like, what? What is happening that these this man who has a long history of lying and being corrupt and and spying on people? Why do these dudes get themselves wrapped up in this? I think it first of all, it's the power of the office of the presidency. Yeah. Um, it's just the idea that you are doing it for the president is intoxicating Mm. and you feel kind of untouchable. And in U.S. history, you largely were untouchable. Like this is the one time that there's a comeuppance um, and you don't see many more uh, before or after. So I think that's part of it. Also, Richard Nixon surrounded himself by slimy Mm. people or with slimy people. And so, you know, these were people who wanted Mm -hmm. power and supporting the president of the United States was a great way to get Mm -hmm. it. Um, I mean, you see this, not to bring it back to the present, but like you see this with the Trump presidency as well. He surrounded himself with people who would never push had, back. Didn't, would, would not only never push back, but didn't actually believe in a higher set of ideals, right? They weren't people who were like, oh, I'm, I'm fighting for democracy. Oh, I'm fighting for freedom. They were like, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get a book I'm deal. i get rich. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Um, and so that's... 
part of it as well, right? Like this idea that we can do anything, that we are untouchable. And so we're going to do anything. And if it keeps our person in power, it keeps sure. us in power. And that kind of will to power is a huge part of U.S. politics and why things so often go off the rails. Um, so I think all of that is is a big, big part of it. There's, you know, there's some through lines of like, well, Richard Nixon was trying to win the Vietnam War to keep the Pentagon Papers from coming out. Um, and, that you know, some of his bad acts are, are really rooted in this idea that um, the U.S. was doing the right thing and being stymied by Congress and being stymied by popular mm-hmm. opinion. But at the end of the day, it just was he was very powerful and people in proximity to power, do things to stay Mm -hmm. in power. And the timing of Jedgar Hoover's death almost immediately Mm -hmm. before Watergate, how, okay, if Jedgar Hoover died a decade before or a decade after, what do you think U.S. history would look like? Wow, it would look a lot. Yeah. It would look a lot different because you know he dies a decade sooner than JFK doesn't have and and LBJ don't have to deal with J. Mm. Hoover, and I think that that gives them a little more breathing room. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have had to deal with J. Edgar Hoover after like what fifty nine yeah. or sixty, and so. Not to say that like some pure-hearted angel would have taken J. Edgar Hoover's place, but his cache of secrets and his use of blackmail and his willingness to strong-arm people and to use all sorts of dirty tricks. Um, the, the person who followed J. Edgar Hoover mm. didn't uh, have his level of power and wouldn't have had his level of power um, if he had died uh, 10 years earlier. And 10 years later... Ten years later is a really interesting question because I'm not sure how Watergate plays mm. out if J. Edgar Hoover is still in Do you power. think it happens? Because the deep throat. Do you think the break-in happens? I mean, I think that I think the break-in yeah. happens. Um, the revelation is what I'm curious gotcha. about. Um, because, you know, deep throat was a member of the mm. FBI and it was part of an internal jockeying for power. And I think... I think I have to go back and look at this, but Mark Feltz, who was Deep Throat, had been passed over um, for a promotion, and that was part of what fueled his revenge. And I think that that probably doesn't take place if Hoover isn't Mm. dead. Um, So how much we would have known about Watergate might have looked a little different. And maybe Hoover could have, like... Made it go away? (laughs) advise, I maybe not made it go away, but, you know, kept Richard Nixon from the Saturday Night Massacre and some of the other, like, kind of out-of-control mm. acts that were happening um, in the uh, in the waning days of Watergate. Wow. That, uh, I'm... It's a great counterfactual. It's such an interesting question. It, it's just, I don't know. I, I, the things that people can get away with and do just by sheer force of will. Like sometimes I just think about how how many huge events in the 20th century were facilitated by like one dude and his ego or his thirst for power or whatever. Like Oppenheimer, Edward Hoover, Trump. Like there's so many people who just want to create their own little world so they can control things. And those are the people who created the bomb. <laughs> like... Yeah. 
it's it's not good. <laughs> I you know I don't think that banning men would end all of this, but I mean it. No, this is the, the first time it wasn't me suggesting a time to ban men, so I'm pretty excited <laughs> to dig into this here. <laughs> really happy that I could uh, love 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 that. Um, I wanted to okay. Let, while we're talking about <laughs> about Watergate, about, about banning, banning men. men, we're going to talk about Sam Irvin, who I. Uh, first of all, the first time I heard him say, well, I'm just a country lawyer. I thought that was a joke from Futurama that they made up and the lawyer was a chicken. It was a good <laughs> joke. I did not know it was a real human being who said, no, I'm just a simple country lawyer, which is a wild thing for an adult to say. <laughs> it's an incredible thing to say. And it's just like, so, so much of like the politics of the mid 20th century are so, so hokey. hokey, so cheesy, like corny. So yeah. cheesy. No, he, so he oversaw the hearing, the Watergate hearing, and mm-hmm. became this sort of liberal hero, which is an interesting rewrite of history, I would say. So why did people glom onto him? Why was he so liked? Because he was seen as kind of the avatar of the people who were holding Richard Nixon mm. accountable. Um, this idea that um, somebody was finally holding him accountable. Somebody was doing mm. something. Um, I mean, we see this with um, Liz Cheney. Oh, sure. Right? Like the idea that you're like standing up to a powerful mm. person and willing to um, risk something in order to do so is, is something that I think people are attracted to. It, it does also get at this very common habit in U.S. politics to try to find a hero and to then forgive or forget all of the bad Mm -hmm. acts that that person that you're elevating Mm -hmm. has been involved with. Um, And we see that time and again in American politics, too. But especially when you have, you know, a president who is accused of particularly bad acts, when you have somebody come forward. I mean, this was part of the... the, um, the fervor behind Ollie mania mm. in the 1980s and they were in Iran Contra that there were a lot of liberals who believed that Oliver North was going to make it clear that Ronald Reagan had engaged in all of these illegal mm. acts and he was going to be the hero for exposing Ronald Reagan. Now that's not how things played out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> North does not stay a liberal <laughs> hero very long. But I think that dynamic um, is is similar. Um, so people started making t-shirts, called him Uncle Sam. But could you talk, speak a little bit to his past? Um, so this is something that I'm not oh, super brushed up on at the moment. But wasn't like he like he a was full-on segregationist? segregationist. Like, yeah. 100%. Um, well, but this is the thing, too, right? Like, he, like, one of the reasons that he's the head of this committee is because white Southern Democrats were the people with any sort of longevity, mm. um, seniority in the Democratic Party. When you talk about the party mm-hmm. switching, um, you had plenty of white segregationists who remain part of the Democratic Party um, well into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and because some of these guys don't die until like 2010, uh, um, all the way into like the Obama administration. Um, so these these folks stick around, and because of the, the seniority, they have these very high-powered mm-hmm. positions within the Democratic Party. And so you have these kind of lions of the Senate during this very liberal era in the Democratic Party who are, in fact, um, if not 
currently are segregationists, um, that had been their politics. That had been where the Democratic Party had come from. And so many of these senior senators, so many of these people who emerge during something like Watergate, um, during the church committee Mm. hearings, are people who are very, very conservative when it comes to racial politics. They're very Mm -hmm. anti-black, and they have this long history of Mm anti-black politics. Not to say that people can't change, um, (laughs) but there there wasn't a lot of repenting Mm. going on um, after the Civil Rights Act. Um, So you end up just, again, like lionizing Mm -hmm. people with um, pretty pretty awful pasts. So why did... Why were, like, Vietnam protesters such a perceived threat? I feel like a lot of, like, Nixon's paranoia was, like, all these kids are protesting across campuses. But, like, if they had power, they wouldn't be protesting. Like, it it just kind of is confusing to me that what he would let his focus get drawn into. Because to me, student protesting is... I mean, I know really the mid 20th century Vietnam was like the rise of the sort of the protesting, mm-hmm. liberal, colleges are liberal, et cetera. But, and like, the, and it escalates to fucking Kent State. Like, how did this, uh, why are protesters such a threat or a perceived threat? I, I, I think say. it's important to write a perceived threat. Well, and it's something that Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, makes a lot of hay and gets a lot of political mm. capital for, for attacking the student protesters. And Nixon is watching and learning from that. So part of it is a, is a question of politics. But I think the kind of broader story is the way that power and respect were expected to work in the United States was beginning to change. Which is not to say that these student protesters had very much power, but you just had um, real victories in the black civil Mm -hmm. rights movement. People who had been at the bottom of um, the social and racial and economic and political hierarchy had managed to get what they wanted out of a Democratic Mm -hmm. president. Um, Here you have uh, these largely white students who are protesting the war, who are resisting getting involved Mm -hmm. in the war, and who are influencing U.S. policy. Mm. You see the draft begin to change. Um, You see more and more um, people being excluded from the draft. You see the Vietnamization of the war, in part because there are all of these protests. Now the policy has to change because the draft is causing so much political unrest in the United Mm -hmm. States. And you have protests, anti-war protesters clashing with police outside of the Democratic Mm -hmm. Convention in 1968. Mm -hmm. It's not just staying Mm -hmm. contained to college campuses. And it is also seen as a signal to both the Soviet Union and to the North Vietnamese that the United States is not united, that the war is divisive, Mm -hmm. And that the war is actually causing U.S. politics to begin to Mm. crumble. And young people who were supposed to understand their place in the hierarchy Mm. are now challenging presidents. That wasn't supposed to happen. There was a much more rigidly hierarchical um, deference to Mm. power in the 1940s and 1950s, particularly among the white middle class in the United States. And one of the big changes of the 1960s is that that deference to power and tradition begins to break down, not across the board, um, not always in lasting ways, um, but that rejection of authority Mm. becomes cool. And coolness is actually a really powerful political force that Richard Nixon 
has a real <laughs> difficult time with. He's a deeply, deeply uncool gentleman, isn't he? Extremely uncool and yet really interested in getting cool sure. points. So he like appears on the Latin oh television sketch show. He, he hangs out with the Rat Pack, right? Um, he hangs out with Elvis Presley. Like he's he likes yeah. celebrity. He wants to be cool, um, and these kids actually are. Uh, right. Um, you guys talk a lot on your podcast about whether things are inevitable or not, and it like. Another thing that sort of like made my brain soup for a little while, especially around the Civil War, like there is uh, Dr. Carter Jackson talks a lot about like it mm-hmm. felt inevitable, but in the, in the same way that um, Slow Burn is framed of people who are living through Watergate did not know how it was going to end. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I think I just was thinking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this idea of trying to recover contingency mm-hmm. as a force in history is really important mm-hmm. um, because you there are all these moments where you can't quite understand why people are acting the way that they were because you're like, well, but the war is going to end in like five years or the war is going to start mm-hmm. in five years or the Great Depression mm-hmm. is going to come or the Great Depression is about to end. And there's this sense that like people in the past had the same perfect knowledge of what was going to mm-hmm. happen next. And it really acts as a damper on one of the most important tools in a historian's toolbox, which is historical empathy, Mm. the ability to, like, put yourself in the shoes of the person at the time. And in order to do that, you have to suspend your knowledge of what comes next and sort of embody the um, emotions a person would be feeling, let's say, in 1968, if you're on a college campus and you know you could Mm. get drafted um, and this war could go on forever. And actually, this war could become a nuclear Mm. war because actually Goldwater, when he was running for president, thought about using conventional, what he called conventional tactical nukes. Um, No. Not not a thing. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that, that... the world seems to be spinning off its axis, and you don't know that it's not going to spin mm-hmm. off its axis, um, that anything could happen. That idea of contingency is so important for understanding mm-hmm. history. I remember I had a high school history teacher, um, and I was a freshman in high school during the 2000 election, and I remember him saying, when people study history, they are going to think that all anybody was doing for this week or month or however long into it we were was mm-hmm. just being a part of that and dealing with that. But he's like, no, you're in my history class. You've got a test tomorrow. Like, and it was a really impactful thing that he said of like it, just people going through life while this weird shit happens in the background. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the middle of World War II, people still had to go to the mm-hmm. grocery, something that was obviously inflected by the war itself. They had sent their kids to school. They had to clean the mm-hmm. house. <laughs> like All of those very um, ordinary, mundane things would have been inflected mm-hmm. by the war. But they would, like, people would have just been living their lives. Um, Y'all did that you know. series about American Girl Dolls, which I loved because I was... The exact right age for it. Because you said you were a little too old for it. I was a Felicity girl, obviously. She liked horses, horse girls. Um, (laughs) But uh, but somebody mentioned the the Molly character gave that sort of thing of like, yeah, her dad is away at war. And yeah, World War II was sort of this overarching thing. But... She was trying to get in the pageant, and she wants to do that. Like, Mm -hmm. she was still just living her little 12-year-old life. 
which is kind of the brilliance mm-hmm. of that series, right? Um, I think that there's there's always the sort of top line description mm-hmm. of who the dolls are. Oh, this is the internment mm-hmm. doll, or this is the slavery doll, or this is the World mm-hmm. War II doll. Um, but if you actually get into the stories that they tell in the books, which again, I was a little too old for them, but um, in researching them, it, this um, this idea that they were just mm-hmm. little girls is actually really powerful and really important. Yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed the uh, the episode discussing Addie because... I was the target for that. There was a lot of discussion of Addie was a black doll for white girls to sort of sum it up. Mm -hmm. And that's me. Like, that's how I learned. (laughs) I was was the white girl. Like, and it worked. I learned empathy and I learned about slavery and I learned what it looked and it worked. It just took me until I was in my late 30s to realize, like, oh, yeah, but maybe I shouldn't have been the target audience for for a little... Maybe there should have been a black doll that black girls really wanted to play with. But, of course, you know, I in hindsight, all of that stuff, it felt really progressive at the time to have a black doll. It was just the whole... Oh, yeah, yeah, such, such wild thing. But I actually... So Aisha Harris was our guest on that show, and she's mm. amazing. She has this wonderful new um, book um, that has all of these pop culture essays in it, including her essays about the American Girl dolls. Um, I think here, too, like historical empathy is mm. important. The conversation has moved on. Um, there's a way to look at the decisions that we made and the opinions mm. that we held and say, hey, I didn't. There were things that I wish that I would have known at that time, and the information was available to mm-hmm. me at that time. Like, you know, maybe I could have learned more and, and um, engaged with more people and asked more questions. But, okay, that's what you knew and what you did at the time. Now you know different things, um, and that's that's great. Don't be too hard well, on yourself. and it's a sign of growth, right? Like, everything Absolutely. we did when we were 10 was so cringy. Things I did when I was 25, also cringy in, you know, the 2023 lens of God, things. things I did last week I mean, are listen, cringy. I'm going to be cringing over <laughs> things from this very interview for the rest. No, I'm kidding. I think it's been fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a, um, just an interesting thing. Okay, last thing. Oh, okay. I had two more things. Do we want to talk, talk about Newt Gingrich or Project Paperclip? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's great, do Gingrich. Great, great, great. Um, more solidly yeah, in my wheelhouse. Also, I don't think we need more Nazi content today. <laughs> um, so new. I can always come back to give you more Nazi we'll content because like, we haven't even touched on recent Nazis. Recent Nazi. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. So new. So I listened to the last archive. Um, which is a podcast about like how we know what is true. And they did a whole episode mm-hmm. about New Gingrich made these like cassette tapes mm-hmm. and mailed them out. And I would love to hear you discuss that and like the homogeny of conservatives. Um, could you kind of spin off on that a little bit? Sure. Look, look, New Gingrich, um, <laughs> New Gingrich was a history PhD He's who a was working in Georgia. Uh, PhD. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor I'm of really mad that um, that's true. And he, he had been a professor. And in fact, his first year as a professor, the um, presidency of the college became open and he applied for it, which kind of gives you a sense of New Gingrich's personality oh and sense of his 
own importance. Um, and instead, what ended up happening was he ran for Congress. And in 1979, he enters Congress as a backbencher in the Republican Party. And because he has this kind of sense of importance, mm-hmm. he sets out a plan to make the Republicans the majority and to become Speaker of the House, which was a wild thing to think in the late 1970s because Republicans had been out of power for mm-hmm. decades mm-hmm. at that point, And there wasn't any sort of clear path back mm-hmm. for them. Part of what he does is he's like, we have to discipline. We have to discipline the Republican Party and the members of the Republican Party in how they attack Democrats, Mm -hmm. how they speak, the kinds of promises they make, what their agenda looks like in order to make it politically palatable and to encourage Americans to vote for them. And that's exactly what he sets out to do. He um, helps to uh, lead one of these organizations called GOP PAC, um, GOPAC, which puts a lot of money into races, into training candidates. This is where those Mm. tapes come in. Um, He is somebody who is very confrontational, and he has a very specific way of speaking, and and his word choice is very Mm. deliberate. He draws up this memo that's like, these are the words that we should associate with Democrats. They're all like disgusting, profligate, corrupt. And here are the words that we should use when we talk about Republicans future-looking visionaries. Is this when they got the corner on values and family and all of those words Mm -hmm. that are, like, coded for conservative? Mm. Exactly at this moment. He's a big part of that. And he sends out these tapes to train candidates to talk the way that Hmm. he does. Um, And back in the day when people are, like, when when you're campaigning, you're in the car all the time, so you can listen to these tapes. And that's how he spreads his message. That's how you start to get this homogeneity in the way that Republicans talk as they as they listen to his How message. did he become so prolific? Like, why are people listening to this freshman congressman? He gets reelected several times, which helps a lot. So he starts to, like, mm-hmm. move up in the ranks a little bit. Um, he is a very good salesman of mm-hmm. himself. He helps to found all of these um, organizations that make him more prominent, so like the Conservative Opportunity mm-hmm. Society. He be- he begins to organize conservatives within the Republican caucus. At the time, the Republican Party is more ideologically mm-hmm. diverse. So that's one way. He, he begins to corner the market on conservatives which is a big part of his appeal. And then as he's like climbing up the ranks, he begins to target the people above him to take them out. So one of his first targets is Jim Wright, who's the Democratic leader in the House, um, the the speaker. He finds ethics complaints (laughs) to bring up against Wright. And actually, Wright ends up resigning because of this campaign that Gingrich carries out against him. Were legit ethics complaints? They were somewhat legit. I mean, are they necessarily like, they wouldn't be scandalous today. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But at the time, like it was, ethics was a big Mm. thing. Um, So he weaponizes ethics um, in order to take out his competition. And he goes after some high level Republicans as well. And he makes his way up very quickly up the Republican leadership um, and positions himself to become speaker when Republicans do take over the majority. what is interesting about that, one, is that he, he mm. succeeds. Um, he used the contract with America in order to unify a national mm. agenda. He becomes speaker in 1995. He's forced out not that long after, four or five years, three or four years later, um, because of ethics violations. Really? Hoisted on his own petard. What, <laughs> what, 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 what violations? 
So his violation was um, he was making a ton of money on the mm. side for book deals. Um, he had this, like, kind of college course. He had a couple of television shows on this um, not-very-long-lived uh, conservative uh, satellite Ooh. network called National Empowerment Ooh. Television. <laughs> and one of his things was, like, this video college course that he was running and that he was maybe misrepresenting the money uh, that he got or misfiling his taxes. He was just, like— Shady business, dude. There was shady business, and he actually, like, he gets fined something like $300,000 while he is Speaker of the House for these ethics violations. Um, And then when the Republicans do very, very, very poorly in the 1998 midterms in the middle Mm. of impeachment— then they're just like, we are done with you. He resigns. He leaves the oh. house. Um, so he's not in power that long, maybe like four years. Why was his goal speaker of the house? Like, I know he ran for president later, but why? It seems like if you're going to set your sights to something absurdly high, like speaker of the house, president feels. But speaker of the house is a lot of power within Congress, mm. right? It was it was the highest position he could reach as a member of Congress. Um, and it was something that no Republican had done in like 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so it really would have been a sea change. He also wanted to revamp the speaker position and position it as somebody who was on level with the president. Um, so wow. he wanted people to think that the opposite of Bill Clinton was Newt Gingrich. And positioned himself that way really effectively. Um, So he was building his way up to an eventual presidential run. That obviously Mm. gets short-circuited by everything going Mm -hmm. haywire later. Um, But that was kind of his idea, that he would be the shadow president or the opposition president uh, as Speaker of the House. Huh. Wow. It's it's not a great plan, but it it does elevate him into a household No, it's not a great plan, and it just feels so... and this is obviously you relaying the story. It doesn't feel like he's a person who's like, I want to become speaker so I can help people. I want to become speaker so I can. It's just he wants the power. Yes, his, he, he did not have. I mean, yes, he had things that he wanted mm. to do. He's a big science nerd. And so there were actually like all of these like very fanciful scientific things he wanted to do. Um, but also like he had very conservative politics that he wanted to mm. promote at the same time. That's not why he wanted to become speaker. He wanted to become speaker because there was so much power imbued in it. And nowadays we don't necessarily think about the speaker as a really powerful role. Although Nancy Pelosi she, exercises yeah, she, a tr- tremendous amount of power a speaker um and i think is is often overlooked in part because she's a woman in that position um and so not heralded as much as she might otherwise be um but you know on the republican side the speaker has become uh, a puppet figure in many ways like kevin mccarthy has very sure. little power within God, the I house forgot he was speaker um, actually <laughs> yeah and Paul Ryan before him, like, leaves very Kevin quickly. I McCarthy election debacle. Those were fun <laughs> days. Oh. It was, I mean, even though it was kind of clear where it was totally. going to end. I enjoyed every push alert I got. I was like, failed again. And I was like. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I, I realize you're going to become speaker and that's what you want. But the humiliation along the we way. to cling to that's those. just moments. a little something for us. A little treat for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just love when they. I, it, the the moments of Schadenfreude are like what I think got us through the last five ten years. Like the Four Seasons incident, I, I think that's right? Like the Four Seasons incident was just 
the hair dye running it down. It was like an episode face. of Veep. Like I've just and and the and it. I feel like that was such a cathartic mm. moment in a lot of ways. And yet, of course, what is happening is a slow rolling coup. Um, that would become a fast-rolling coup um, a couple of weeks later. And it, that has been the part of the the surrealness mm. of the past six or seven years, but also just kind of what fascism and illiberalism look like is that it's not necessarily like people in threatening mm. uniforms using power and violence in very clear ways. Sometimes it is also like these bungling idiots who are also – attacking democracy Mm -hmm. and sometimes more effectively than others. Um, But it's like this very serious and awful thing is happening. And then it's like wrapped in all of this absurdity, um, which I think has become a real feature of our politics Mm -hmm. of late. Yeah. I, yes, I'm sorry. I think I had another point, but I think we should wrap it up. This is truly, this is such a pleasure. I'm so happy right now. I want to just hang out with you and have a glass of wine and talk shit about Reagan. Um, <laughs> Next time we'll do, we'll do friendly atheist okay. after dark. Yes. Um, we'll have our glasses of wine uh, and we will continue yes, the conversation. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Hammer, this was an, a privilege and a joy for me. Thank you for your time. Thank you for letting me bug you until until we got this this time in. Um, I'm just such a fan of you. I remember the first time I was watching the first time I was watching Slow Burn. I'm so cool. I heard your voice and I was like, <laughs> "Is that like a friend of mine?" And I, saw it, I was like, "It's Nikki." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and let's yes, do it again. this was great. Um, do you want to plug anything? Your your shows are. Sure. My um, podcasts are This Day in Esoteric Political History, which is with the Radiotopia mm-hmm. Network. Um, I also do an independent podcast called Past Present uh, that comes out every week, another just kind of like discussion of history. Um, I have a book that came out last year around this time called Partisans. So if you're interested in the right in the 1990s, that is a good place to go. If you want to see how things went off the rails in the 1990s, that's a good source. I write a column for CNN. Um, I'm out and about on the very social medias so you can uh you can find me there uh chatting about whatever is going on Excellent. in the world dr hammer thank you so much for your time um i hope we get to speak soon if i remember in nashville i'm gonna look you up and show up at your house like it's me Please do. um thank you for your time i hope you have a great rest of your week and um and take care we'll speak soon i hope all right sounds good thank thanks you. so much